This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. If you have a Bible with you, you can open with me to the book of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And... Uh, we're going to make this a little more interactive than we typically do. But kids, who has had a, uh, who's had a great birthday before? Raise your hand if you've had a great birthday before. Anyone had a great birthday? See one here? One there? One there? Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Appreciate you, Jake. Okay. Oh, some adults got their hands up too. That's great. So you think about the best birthday you ever had. I think it's fair to say that Jesus has us all beat. Um, God, the night that Jesus was born, he, he had a, there was a star in the sky that led wise men to his place. They probably didn't arrive that night, but the star was shining that night. We can get a star named after us. Jesus had a star created for him. God didn't send out save the dates for his birthday party. He sent angels. I had a friend once who rented a billboard to celebrate his wife's birthday. Uh, saying, I'm like, man, you, you're, every, every guy does not like you right now. You are really raising the bar here, man. But think about it. God filled up the sky with being so glorious that every time they show up in the Bible, people fall down in fear. That, that's how he announced the birth of his son. So Jesus really could be that kid on the block who, you know, it's like, hey, what'd you do for your birthday? And like, oh, your parents ran you a bouncy house? That's so nice. My dad filled up the sky and had a heavenly choir sing for me. You know, I'm sure he didn't do that. You know, he wasn't that type of kid. But his birthday was certainly amazing. And yet, I think some of the most incredible things are actually some of the details that are very easy to overlook. In Luke's gospel, he gives some details, very specific details, details that as we're reading the story, we can just glance over. They seem pretty mundane, but here's what we need to understand. God is at work, even in mundane details, in miraculous ways. God works in even mundane details in miraculous ways. And so this morning, I want to draw our attention to some of those mundane details. And as we see how God is working miracles in the mundane, my prayer is that our faith would be strengthened, that God can be at work even in the mundane details of our lives. Kids, God can be at work in the details of your life. When you go to school, when you do your homework, when you do your chores, and I'm sure you do them cheerfully, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, and all those little details, those things you do every single day, there's miracles that God can work. There's things that God can powerfully do. And so I've told this morning's sermon, The Miraculous and the Mundane. The Miraculous and the Mundane. We're going to read Luke chapter 2. The verses that came before are called to worship. So verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, 
and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Guys, we read your word. I pray you'd be with us now as I try to explain how you're at work in these details. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts this Christmas morning. Thank you that you are the God who's come to be with us. You are our Emmanuel, and so you are here with us right now. And as I work our way through this story, a story that's very familiar, Lord, I pray that this morning you would help us to see a little bit more how profound this familiar story is. I pray you'd be with us that our hearts might be drawn in faith to you. Would you do this for the good of our souls and the glory of your name? In Jesus' name, amen. And so I just want to draw our attention to two things in this story. Two kind of mundane, ordinary details. I want to draw our attention to the decree. And I want to draw our attention to the manger. The decree and the manger. First, let's, let's think about this decree. This text starts by saying that Caesar Augustus ordered everyone to go back into to their hometown. Now, kids, does anyone know who Caesar was? Anyone know who Caesar was? You can raise your hand. You heard Caesar before? Yeah, you heard Caesar before? All right. So um, I'm actually pretty impressed with a couple kids. Uh, when I was your age, I didn't know Caesar. The only Caesar I knew was uh, Little Caesar's Pizza. Does anyone know Little Caesar's Pizza? That was the Caesar I knew. But, but this Caesar was Caesar Augustus. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. His birth name was Gaius Octavius, also known as Octavian. And he took the name Caesar when he became emperor. And under his reign... He achieved things that no person had ever achieved before. He took the various armies of of Rome under various generals that had really become scattered, and he consolidated them into one national force, the first ever national army. It was the most powerful army the world had ever seen. He united all the lands in the known world under the Roman Empire and brought uh, what's known as the Pax Romana, 200 years of peace. Um, some of the greatest peace the world has ever known. There's no major wars in the world for 200 years. Just think about that. He built great roads that facilitated commerce and brought great prosperity. And so in 27 BC, which is about three years into his reign, because of what he was doing and how amazing it was, the Roman Senate gave him the title Augustus, which means exalted one, majestic, highly honored. It became the belief that he was actually a son of a god. An inscription was made calling him the savior of the world. That's Caesar Augustus, one of the greatest and most powerful leaders the world has ever known. And here we see this powerful man giving an order that everyone in his empire should be counted. This was done for tax purposes. He had to make a budget just like everyone else. And so he wanted to see how many people existed in his land So that he could see how much money he would be able to get from them. Now this is also an incredible power move. He's saying that all provinces report to me. He says it's the whole world. How about that? You know, the whole world is what he ruled. And the whole world had to be registered. Every single person. He was showing off really how much control he had. You all have to do what I say. Now what's going on here? This is interesting history, but all you kids are on you know, school break right now, so you're probably upset about the history lesson. But, but stick with me, stick with me. Luke is doing more than just giving history here. He's actually making a very profound theological point. This, this might seem like some mundane details, but don't miss the miraculous here. See, what Augustus the Exalted One didn't realize was that this decree that he thought he had come up in his own mind 
was actually setting in motion the fulfillment of a prophecy made 700 years prior. The prophet Micah said this, But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Through the prophet Micah, God promised that a ruler would come who is eternal. And so what does that mean? That means the ruler is God himself because God is the only one who's ever existed from the days of eternity. God's the one who, who's existed before there was existence. He's the only eternal being. And so this eternal being is going to become the ruler and he's going to come from Bethlehem, which was the birthplace of Israel's first great king, King David. And so this prophecy from Micah showed that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the king to end all kings, God's eternal ruler. And so this prophecy, in many ways, is kind of like the sword and the stone. Right, kids, have you seen that movie before? It's actually one of my favorite Disney movies. I know it's uh, really old now at this point. But, but the sword and the stone, right? It's the one who could take the sword out of the stone. That's how you knew who the true king was. Well, what Micah was saying, the one who would be born in Bethlehem, that's how you knew who the true king, God's eternal king was. And God had already told Mary back in chapter 2 that she would give birth to the Son of God. This would not be a pretend Son of God, like Augustus was called. This would be the true Son of the true God. Yet in order to fulfill the prophecy, he'd have to be born in Bethlehem. And so there's a problem with that. Mary didn't live in Bethlehem. Mary lived in Nazareth. And back then, you really did not move around. There was no moving vans. There was no pickup trucks. There wasn't any easy way to carry your stuff. And so pretty much you stayed and lived in a place you were born. And so Mary and Joseph had no plans to go to Bethlehem until Caesar Augustus just happened to make a decree requiring them to do so. And so don't miss what's happening. The miracle that's taking place in this mundane detail. What Caesar Augustus did to show off his power and supremacy was actually what God was doing to show that he's the one who truly has all power and all supremacy. Caesar thought he was making something happen. What he didn't realize was he was an unwitting servant in the hands of the Almighty God. Caesar, Caesar made a decision. He enacted his will to impose this decree, but what he did not understand, but we must understand, is that every human will is also part of God's will. Christmas shows us, friends, that God is always in control, and there is nothing that happens that's not part of his plan. doesn't mean that we might always like what's happening. doesn't mean that we might even understand what is happening. Think about Mary and Joseph when they get this decree. Do you think they were happy about it? I don't think so at all. Mary was very pregnant. This is a several days journey. Women, think about being nine months pregnant and riding on a donkey for several days. How does that sound? Guys, think about your wife being nine months pregnant and telling her she has to ride on a donkey for several days. How does that sound? This is, this is not a journey that they were in any ways looking forward to. I'm sure there was frustration that must have set in. I can't believe this is happening now. God, you're supposed to be bringing the Messiah into the world. They didn't, obviously, they weren't connecting the dots between Micah. They didn't get that. Like, God, you're bringing the Messiah into the world. Why do we have to move now? Why is this happening now? Have you ever wondered, God, why now? Have you ever asked the question, God, what are you doing? 
as if somehow we know better than him. And yet so often we can think that. And yet God is, is working at all things, at all times, to bring about his perfect plan. And so really what they saw as a struggle was what God was using to bring about their salvation. And so as we go through life, and when life takes turns that we never imagined, kids, you need to understand when something bad happens, when something sad happens, we do not have to fear those things. We do not have to be discouraged and depressed about those things. Even when we don't know what God is doing, that doesn't mean that God doesn't know what he's doing. It just means he hasn't asked us for our opinion. And that's a good thing because he knows a lot more about the world than we do. It's a good thing that God is in the one in charge and not us. Because the, the fact that God doesn't work according to our expectations means that God can therefore exceed our expectations in ways we can never even understand. Right? God can do more than we can even think or imagine. If God can work through a godless emperor imposing a harsh decree that moves Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem at the precise point of Jesus' birth. I mean, think about that. A few months early, and it would have been too soon. They would have gone there, been registered, then gone back. Jesus wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem. A few months too later, it would have been too late. Jesus would have been born in Nazareth, and it already would have been done. God worked at that precise moment. To have the decree come at the precise time when Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. If God's working in such precise details, can he be working in the details of our life too? Can he still be working in the details of our life too? Even the details that frustrate us. Even details that we don't like. Can't they also be part of maybe a better story that God is writing that will end in beauty? It's not just the details of the decree though. There's also the details we have to pay attention to of the manger. Let's think about the manger here for a second. Why mention where Jesus was born? What, what does that contribute to the story? We're told in verse 7 that he was born in a manger. What are we learning about that? Well, if you could pick your living situation, how would you start out? If you could live anywhere, anywhere in the world, where are you, where are you picking? Where are you picking? I'm probably picking San Diego. San Diego is beautiful, always 70 degrees, which sounds really good right about now, you know. I mean, I, I do like the cold weather for Christmas. So I'd like, you know, have family on the East Coast, fly back to the East Coast, enjoy, you know, cold Christmas. Then I go right back to my condo on the beach, right? Like, like I'm not picking a no-name town, Bethlehem, and I'm certainly not picking a manger. Like, if we could pick anywhere we could go in the world, God gave us a choice. I don't think we're going to pick, like, yeah, put me underneath 95. You know, like I just want to hang out underneath there, you know, those tent, those tent communities look great. Like that's not what we're doing. We're going to pick the best place. Think about it. God could have been born anywhere, couldn't he? Jesus could have been born into any situation that he wanted to. He's in control of all things at all times. There's nothing, there's no, there's nothing that says, yeah, he had to be born in Bethlehem, but he could have been born in a palace in Bethlehem or at least a comfortable place. But he chose to be born in a manger. He chose to be born in an animal shed. Now we have to clear something up here. Year after year, there's a person in the Christmas story who unfairly gets blamed. There's the myth that there's this innkeeper that, you know, Mary and Joseph knock on the door and this innkeeper like shoves the door, no, no, no room for you, you know, and, and doesn't let them in. Um, there's actually not an innkeeper mentioned anywhere in the Bible. So let's just be clear on that. Let's let this poor innkeeper who's been suffering for thousands of years, let's let him off the hook, right? That's not, that's not at all what's happening here. Inns in the ancient world, they're not, like, they're not like, you know, 
a hotel that we go to now, we have to check in at a desk. They're, they're basically public campgrounds. That's what they were. Uh, it was a place to be able to be safe together, uh, but, it was, but it was basically a community campground. And so this wasn't just one person who was saying there's no room for you. This was a community that was saying, hey, we don't have any space left for you out-of-towners. We, we don't have any space left for you to come and be with us. Now, courtesy would have been for someone to give up their spot. Right? That, that's just a hospitable thing to do. And not only is it a hospitable thing to do, but again, this woman is pregnant. Very pregnant. And that's who this community of people are saying, nah, you gotta go find somewhere else. See, Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. Nazareth was not a respected place. No one liked Nazareth. People actually look down on others from Nazareth. Later on in the gospel, someone will say, can anything good come from Nazareth? It was just this disgusting place. In many ways, we could be seeing a very early example of racism taking place here. You're a Nazarene. We don't want you dirtying up your spot with us. And so they get put in an animal shed. You ever felt like someone's looked down on you before? Or felt left out. God chose for his son to be born in a place of rejection. As we think about the manger, like, I know I'm sure we have our little nativity scenes and, like, the nice, cute, you know, um, hay. And we, were, we watched a little nativity movie with our family last night. And it's just, like, beautiful, like, you know, the animals are all lying down. And um, the hay is this beautiful bed. I'm like, oh, man, I'd like to take a nap in there. Like, it looks like this sweet place. Um, I don't think anyone who's making those things has spent a lot of time in, in barns. Uh, but that's not how barns look. You pay attention to barns. Animals don't lie down. They're up and around and making a lot of noise and pooping all over the place. Right? That's just reality. I know I'm going to get some angry emails from parents. I know I just said poop in church. But, but it's, seriously, it's, this is nasty. There's spit of animals. There's slobbering everywhere. Right? You know? And so here's, here's the choices. Why they put them in a manger? Well, their choices were either put them in the muck of the floor... Or at least get them off the floor and put them in this animal feeding trough. You ever seen animal feeding trough? I'm not eating my dinner out of there, let alone putting one of my children in there. And yet when your choice is between poop mixed with mud or saliva, I'm going, I guess you have to go with saliva. This isn't an ideal scene at all. This isn't this beautiful picture. This is disgusting. And we're meant to see this as disgusting. This is a nasty place. Jesus is born into the stench of animals, into filth, into sweat, into blood, into coldness, into straw, and into stink. This is how the eternal ruler chose to make his entrance into the world. And friends, this detail is no accident. Right from the beginning, God is showing us what he's willing to do for us in Jesus. God loves us so much that he's willing to come down, down even to the muck and mess. And not just the muck and mess of the manger, but friends, the muck and mess of our lives. How often our lives can look like a dirty manger scene. We can have muck, we can have so many things, so many nasty things going on, even in our own hearts. That's what Jesus came to enter into. Right from the beginning, God is showing us what he's willing to do in Jesus. He's so, he loves us so much that he's willing to come down into muck and mess. And so right from the beginning, Jesus is showing us that he didn't come to be this majestic king, but he came really to be the suffering servant. 
He came to be the one who would take on the mess of the world so that we could be clothed in his forgiveness and grace. You see, the animal noises, 33 years later, would give way to the crowd shouting, crucify him. No one wanting to give him shelter would turn into everyone wanting him to die. The stench of this feeding trough and the muck of this animal shed would turn into the stench and muck of our sins being placed on the Holy One as Jesus bore them on that hill in Calvary. As the wood of the manger gives way to the wood of the cross. Friends, here's what you need to understand. God's not just in control of all things, but he, He loves us. And He's shown His heart of love for us by what He is willing to do for us. He's the God of love who went into the mess of the manger. This is the God of love who then went into the mess of the cross so that he could take care of the mess of our lives. Kids, however much, however, however much you think you've messed up, sometimes you feel like, oh, I just I messed up. I, I messed up so bad. Here's what you need to understand. God loves you. God loves you even when you're a mess. God's not like Santa Claus. He's not keeping a naughty and nice list. And he didn't send an elf on a shelf to make sure you're doing the right thing. No, God knows all things. He doesn't need any elves to look at you. He sees you. He sees right into your heart, and he knows the mess that is there. And he loves you still. He loves you. He loves you, and he came to die on the cross for you. God knows how bad we are. He knows we sin, and that's why he came to be our Savior. If we need to be healed, he would have come as a doctor. If we need to be taught, he would have come as a teacher. If we needed to just learn how to figure out some things, he probably would have come as an engineer. But he knew that we needed a, to be cleansed from our sin, and so he came as a Savior. To die on the cross and to take our place. And so as we come to a close, and as we think about stuff that can happen to us, stuff that can seem so normary, those, those details of life that can be inconvenient, that can feel unnecessary, that can be hurtful. This Christmas, let's remember the Christmas story. Let's remember that God works miracles, even the mundane. There are no unnecessary details in his divine, redemptive plan. Everything that happens, happens for our good. Because God's a God of love. And Christmas proves that once and for all. Let's bow our heads in prayer.